This podcast from Teacher is supported by the Australian Volunteers Program. Are you interested in supporting communities overseas? Become a remote volunteer. Visit australianvolunteers.com to learn more. Thanks for listening to this behaviour management episode from Teacher Magazine. I'm Rebecca Vukovic. Today is Are You OK Day, a national day of action here in Australia dedicated to reminding everyone to check in on their loved ones and ask, Are You OK? For students learning how to care for their own well being and to support their peers to talk about how they feel is an important life lesson. In today's episode, I'm joined by Professor Fiona Brooks, a medical sociologist and a professor of child and family health at the University of Technology, Sydney. The focus of today's discussion is the relationship between mental health, well-being and student behaviour at school. But we also explore the state of child and youth mental health in Australia, why it's important to approach poor student behaviour with empathy and compassion, and why meaningful student-teacher relationships can make a significant difference in any child's life. Let's get started. Professor Fiona Brooks, welcome to Teacher Magazine. Professor Brooks, you're a medical sociologist and a professor of child and family health at the University of Technology, Sydney. You've published widely on topics relating to young people's health and well-being. Could you tell me a little more about your professional background and why this area of research is of particular interest to you? Yes, thank you. Yes, so the second decade of life um, is a really important developmental period um, where future life chances can really be set in stone. So that it's a really important um, time to consider how we can put the right kind of resources around young people to really ensure that they can thrive. Um, And one of the things that's really interested me around this is that young people are also tending to be seen, while everybody wants to be young and youthful, young people actually themselves can be seen in a much more ambivalent light, both in terms of policy context and in in kind of public perception. So while a lot of energy and resources goes into the under fives, as it should do, that second decade of life can be a little bit um, undervalued and ignored, and young people themselves can be seen quite negatively. Yet we now know from a lot of the cognitive research that's being done, as well as um, all the outcome work um, around public health, Um, we can really see that actually that second decade of life really does warrant some significant attention if our our population is going to thrive in the future. Yeah, it's clear that this is an issue you're passionate about, which is why you've dedicated your career to researching this topic. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's just fundamentally important and it's it's an area where we can make a significant difference. Um, a small input can really make a, chi- a change in a young person's life and affect their whole life course. 
Um, for example, when I'm, I'm sure every single person listening can can identify and relate to a moment in their life, particularly in adolescence in secondary school, where a teacher or an adult made a difference by just showing an interest in you. Um, I can certainly point to a teacher when I was in secondary school who actually encouraged and facilitated me. Um, I was first in family and I would never have gone to university without that person's support and input. Yeah, and that meaningful student-teacher relationship you're describing there is something I'd like to return to later on in the episode. But for now, I'd like to start by exploring the relationship between mental health, well-being and a young person's behaviour. On a really simple level, does their mental health and sense of well-being impact on their behaviour? Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, um, let's take this back a, a little bit and think about um, sort of 10, 15 years ago, the main concerns around young people's health and well-being. Young people were considered pretty much to be, to the second decade of life was considered to be a healthy period of time. And the only things we were really concerned about was young people's choices they made to participate in health risk behaviours. And that's kind of the usual suspects we all know about, the, the drugs, you know, drugs, sex and rock and roll kind of, of phenomena. Um, but um, over the last decade, we have seen a decline in young people's participation in all of those kinds of behaviours. But actually, at the same time, um, there's been a, a significant increase in concern about young people's mental health. And that's not just um, high levels of clinical, um, what would be considered clinical uh, mental health problems, but actually um, levels of anxiety, stress, um, all of that seems to be contributing to young people struggling during the second decade of life. Yeah, let's dive a little deeper into that now. That is the state of child and youth mental health in Australia. What are some of the key issues students are facing when it comes to their mental health? Yeah, um, so we're looking at around one in five, 20% of young people from age 11 to 17 experiencing high or very high levels of distress and those figures have been consistent for around the last decade perhaps increasing slightly um, it is a gendered issue so we do need to think about that um, you know girls and, and young women are much more likely to experience and report poorer mental health than their male peers and for example, the work I've um, undertaken in Europe, because this is, this is a common pattern we see across pretty much all OECD countries. That's um, Europe, um, North America, Australia, New Zealand. Um, we see um, that kind of level of kind of high levels of kind of poor mental health. Um, and for example, in the work that I've done, 35% of all 15-year-olds that we surveyed, and this was in the UK, of all 15-year-old girls reported they had self-harmed at least once in the last year. Now that may only have been once, but that shows you the level of distress that young people um, are likely to be experiencing. So you asked, um, Rebecca, what might be the determinants of that? Well, I think it's a complex set of um, factors that have kind of created a bit of a perfect storm for young people. So certainly, um, and people often point to, you know, social media 
And um, I think that has a role to play, both positively and negatively. And we have to understand that social media and and um, new technology, new information technologies can actually be quite positive for young people. And some of the research I've done has shown that, you know, for example, um, gaming, computer gaming can actually be quite positive, pro, uh, encourage pro-social behaviour and a whole set of other um, positive behaviours. But when taken to extreme, when you are sitting in your bedroom with your phone under your pillow all night waiting for that text, when you're likely to experience um, uh, some, you know, cyberbullying or um, some of the negative associations with um, uh, new technologies, then, then that can be a contribu- contributing factor. Um, and certainly um, we see cyberbullying as we see mental health issues increase with age. So unlike normal bullying, which kind of, you know, it, um, often is higher amongst the younger age groups and, and tends to be reported as decreasing as, as young people get older, cyberbullying seems to have a different pattern. Um, and what young people have told us in the research we've done, that that kind of um, experience can be very distressing. A, because it's often anonymised, you don't know who's perpetuating it. You're experiencing it very much on your own. You can never get away from it. So whereas perhaps in the past you might be bullied at school, but you could come home, you could get away with it, you could join other groups. um, When you're experiencing cyberbullying, you can never get away. It's always there. It's always on your device. Um, Also, even if you're not experiencing some of those very negative behaviours, the level of surveillance young people are under um, has increased exponentially. So you're much more likely to feel judged. You're much more likely to want to feel that you should look um, in a certain way and have that um, presented and um, it, in social media in formats, you know, Instagram and all of those um, kind of um, additional platforms do have a role to play, I think, in, in generating some of this levels of anxiety. The other side of it, but it's not, it's not just social media, um, the expectations on young people have increased exponentially. The um, expectations of performance at school has increased. Um, it's now much harder. You have to get higher grades um, the few, um, to get into the courses you might want to do at university. Um, the the um, expectations around the work environment are much higher. So And, and young people feel they're going to be facing a much um, less certain future in terms of their future um, future work or um, employment and um, financial security. So all of that is likely to be a contributing factor, a a major set of determinants that create that, as I've said, um, perfect storm around young people to possibly increase um, levels of anxiety. Yeah, and of course, this always leaks back into the classroom as well. And I'd like to talk now about poor student behaviour in the classroom. I'm wondering, Fiona, what are some of the key signs or giveaways that a student is struggling with their mental health or well-being? What kinds of behaviours should teachers be looking out for in their classrooms? Yeah, I I mean, I think um, for most teachers, the kinds of behaviours they would see that would be indicators of um, high levels of distress would be disengagement. Um, perhaps in a student that you've, who's been engaged well before at the age of 11. What we see in these patterns is that age 11, 
boys and girls tend to have quite high well-being um, and, and it does decline with age. So that change around age 13 could be something that teachers could look out for. I think um, what we also need to think about is we, always, we often see um, these behaviours as very highly individualised within one student. But what we should perhaps be doing is turning this question around on its head and asking what actually creates good behaviour in young people. Because now the research is pretty conclusive about a whole set of factors that can really help. Um, and the role that school and teachers can play in, in helping with that. So there's quite a considerable body of research that suggests school commitment, including young people's attachment to teachers, shapes their affiliation with, their, with um, supporting peers. So, you know, um, a young person that will feel committed to school and engage with their teachers are also likely then to be picking and developing peer relationships with other peers who are of like mind and supporting, you know, engaged at school. And um, so there's a sort of virtuous circle that we can start to trigger here if we start facilitating school connectedness and school belonging. And this then will ultimately, the research is showing, affects their behavioural choices. It affects their behavioural choices in the classroom. So we see more positive, um, affirming behaviours in the classroom and less participation in risk behaviours and health risk behaviours. Yeah, for teachers too, it may be more effective for them to approach student behaviour with empathy and compassion rather than other emotions like frustration or anger, for example. But when poor behaviour is displayed in the classroom, particularly when it breaches the disciplinary codes of the school, what is the most appropriate way for a teacher to address it? So um, schools, we know that schools that have very high punitive disciplinary practices actually are more likely to be associated with lower well-being for young people. Those, as you said, exactly right, those that have um, a more empathetic approach to young people actually have higher levels of reported well-being amongst their pupils. And we absolutely know that high levels of, of reported well-being are strongly associated with um, higher levels of attainment. So this is core business for schools. Actually getting well-being right in the classroom will actually... Um, is really important for schools and for the outcomes they want to see in, in their communities and about their school. So this is really important um, for schools to help facilitate this. There are a number of things that we know are associated with this. Um, teacher connectedness, so good positive relationships with teachers. Feeling If young people feel that teachers are an adult in their life, is interested in them, cares about them, um, wants them to do well, then they are more likely to respond to that positively. And it is more likely to reinforce that virtuous circle I talked about than and, you know, get young people into a negative cycle. We'll be back after this quick message from our sponsor. You're listening to a podcast from Teacher Magazine supported by the Australian Volunteers Programme. Did you know the Australian Volunteers Program is looking for teachers to support communities overseas? 
you can become a remote volunteer and help support positive change in developing countries. There are lots of education assignments now online. Visit australianvolunteers.com to find the right volunteer program for you. As you said just then, the research shows that having a significant, meaningful relationship with at least one adult in their life has been considered one of the most powerful assets to a young person's health. What does that actually look like in the classroom, though? Do you have any advice for teachers on how they can strengthen their relationships with students? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that um, where even we found, um, even where young people don't have parental support and it's really important that parental support and teacher support works together um, that's the strongest set of relationships for young people but we did find that where there wasn't parental support teacher support could act as a, act as a compensatory mechanism and still ensure that young people thrived so it's the role of teachers here is critical um, but teachers need support to be able to do this. Um, we found, for example, where there are um, good um, teacher-staff-student um, ratios, so some of this is systemic, we've got to get the right kind of support around teachers to enable them to provide this. Um, so, so where there's good staff-student ratios, then, then we see higher levels of teacher connectedness because, you know, actually teachers then have the capacity to give more attention to this. Certainly there are... Um, training and support for teachers is really important. So um, uh, there are there are lots of programs out there that that provide social emotional developmental programs for young people, but also ones that jointly provide support for teachers. I think are are also critical, and they are becoming more common. But the sort of things that actually make a significant difference for young people is is the teacher feeling they know you as a person. So if the teacher knows your name, that's a fundamentally positive thing. If they just talk to you, ask you about um, how you're doing, a sense that there's an interest in you, um, that, that makes a significant difference to young people. These can be quite small things, but they can make a significant difference to the, that young person's experience of school, how they feel they belong in the school, and ultimately their attainment in the school. Yeah. Fiona, today is Are You OK Day, a national day of action dedicated to reminding everyone to check in on their loved ones and ask, are you OK? So while I have you here, I have to ask, why are days like today important? And what do they teach young people in particular about supporting those around them? Yeah, that's really important. Um, so are you OK? The reason I really like the message of, of around are you OK, and I think it's a really positive one for young people, is that it's founded in that a conversation can change your life. And a conversation with a young person during those, those critical years of 11 to 17 really can fundamentally change their lives. You know, a, a teacher taking the time to have a conversation with a child or a young person that they feel might be struggling... I mean, teachers should trust their instincts on this and actually just try and talk to the young person. That conversation could actually change somebody's life and it can change their life, you know, in terms of their, their complete life outcomes. It can really turn things around for a young person. What also participating in IEOK can really help with as well for young people is it can 
give them the set of tools they have to provide support to each other. And if young people can learn how they can support each other through this, because quite often we find that young people may be reluctant to go to an adult in their life, but will do so if a peer suggests that they do. So hearing from a friend who says, hey, are you okay? And talks to them about doing something about it could actually be the main trigger that again changes their lives. Yeah, it's such an important message. Professor Fiona Brooks, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today and hearing your thoughts on such an important issue. Thanks for sharing your work with Teacher Magazine. You're very welcome. That's all for this episode. If this episode has raised any issues for you, there is always support available. If you or anyone you know needs help, call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or the Kids Helpline on 1800 551 800. For support and resources, visit beyondblue.org.au. If you want to keep listening, there are more than 200 podcasts in our archive. You can find them on the teacher website or wherever you get your podcasts from. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your podcast app and please rate and review us while you're there. You've been listening to a podcast from Teacher supported by the Australian Volunteers Program. Are you interested in supporting communities overseas? Become a remote volunteer. Visit australianvolunteers.com to learn more.